the narrative in the public eye is that you left working with the modi government because your opinions weren't heard the point is not that this is silly government the point is that within the government you have checks and balances in the congress government what was your biggest achievement we brought down inflation inflation was at near double digits we started upi money transfers that you make all the time through paytm phone pay that was started in my time every government carries on the work of previous governments all the credit belongs to the government past 2014 and none belongs before i think is not right having an overly powerful prime minister india cannot be governed from a very very narrow center do you think you were a disliked guy in every profession you have to know when people are pulling wool over your eyes when they're trying to uh, convince you of something and you know it's not true This is an epic two-part conversation with the former RBI governor Dr. Raghuram Rajan. It's an explosive yet educative conversation. We had to split it up into two parts. Part 1 is primarily about the basics of economics, how he looks at the subject and what he learned from his stint as the RBI governor working with both the Manmohan Singh government as well as the Narendra Modi government. There's a lot of insight in part 1. part 2 gets a little more political part 1's more on the educative side but all in all i feel both these parts encapsulated the ideas present inside this book that dr raghu's written it's called breaking the mold you'll understand what this statement means by the end of the two parts i sincerely hope you gain value from this conversation because for me it was an honor speaking to this man you'll know why when you slip straight into it enjoy today's trs conversation dr raghuram rajan Thank you for being in our house, being in our studio. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me here. This is a huge honor because ever since I was in college, I've been hearing your name uh, in the best possible conversations. Whenever the conversation gets super intellectual, and if it's about economic policy, your name sprouts up. <laughs> so it says a lot about your body of work. Yeah. Well, uh, at least at this point, I'm trying to talk to a broader public. So reduce the intellectual, broaden the reach. I was about to say that with conversations like this I'm always a little confused whether I should make it intellectual and deep or kind of make it massy and you know for the public for kids as well it can be for both right i mean sometimes the most complex uh, arguments can be simplified because you know ultimately mo- many uh, sort of deep arguments have a very simple message and if you can distill that i mean i I've, i've seen some great teachers they can do it fantastically well and that that's that's not yeah uh, the one thing i figured is that if one truly understands the subject matter then they're able to explain it to four year olds really well using metaphors absolutely uh, the metaphors require some thinking <laughs> but uh, but yeah the, i mean that's really the art because you have to understand it you know as a colleague of mine who's very famous academic says look i i i teach because to teach i have to understand it thoroughly and then i have to explain there there are lots of bad teachers who just read off from their notes 
but to really understand it and to teach people uh i think that's that's really um, you know a, a deep 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 exercise and it requires a lot of intellectual thinking it requires a lot of time alone going over the concepts you've learned trying to figure out how you'll relate to your students or the audiences absolutely absolutely and and the best teachers spend a lot of time doing that you know how does it, i mean i you know we talked a little bit about how your show works but the best teachers do that go over how they taught the lecture okay what worked what didn't work and that's why when i teach cases it's not the first time i teach it that works best it's the seventh time because then i understand aspects of the case that you know come from my audience that is my my students but also i understand that uh, okay this didn't fly so well because i didn't explain it i have to do it better hmm uh i need you to explain some things to us today okay absolutely um i want to be fully straightforward with you and just tell you how i'm approaching this conversation uh so we've had two people speak about economic policy on the show kv subramanian sir mm. and uh, sanjeev sanyal sir mm. and i've learned everything about economics through those conversations i've had with them so i have certain notions mm-hmm. i encourage you to destroy those notions if you feel i'm thinking in a wrong way mm. uh and kind of help me further the understanding sure. the one thing that's encouraged in this show is uh disagreements okay yeah i feel it leads to like much better conversation good so pardon me if i disagree with you and i want you to disagree with me absolutely so. okay so uh let's start with a statement i heard economy and mm. economic growth mm. can be boiled down to you producing more things yes that's it well it's two parts okay uh, producing more things is one half of it which is what uh, we call supply the other half of it is somebody has to want those things there has to be demand for it when both come together you get growth so sometimes when there's overproduction but nobody wants it then uh what happens is you have industries producing too much they cut back that's what is called a recession because they stop producing because nobody's buying the stuff right and sometimes you have a lot of demand and not enough production that's when you get inflation because prices are rising there's a lot of demand people want more of of it but not enough is being supplied i mean think for take for example airlines if it's a hot tourist season everybody wants a ticket so the airlines are all flying full and they know they can raise their prices that's a situation where demand is exceeding supply you can't build new planes in a hurry you can't bring them on board you have only so many flights and therefore that's that's uh, inflation gotcha do you mind if i have this coffee absolutely i'll I join you encourage yeah. you cheers cheers for <laughs> meeting you this is such a big life achievement for me honestly you know this is very interesting orange juice and coffee Okay. Um, it's my friend Riaz Amlani's uh, brainchild. It's called Dope Coffee. I'm just not branded at all. He's just a friend. Um, but coffee culture in Mumbai is growing a lot. This is a lot better though than some of those energy drinks, which have <laughs> five or ten times the caffeine in them. Yeah. Those I think are positively dangerous because you may stay alive, uh, awake for a really long time, doing damage to your health. May I ask you what's up in life right now? What's up in life? Well, um, on the one hand, I have a new book which uh, i'm trying to promote the message it's uh, sort of trying to say there's a different path for india in terms of growth um other than that it's uh, you know teaching i have to teach a phd course uh, in the next uh, next quarter which i have to you know 
uh, along what we said. I have to first decide what I want to teach and then do the reading, learn it myself. So there's a lot of work to be done. And then, of course, we have an election coming up in this country. And, uh, you know, I'm going to you know, try and speak so that people sort of get a sense of what the big issues might be uh, as we go into the election. You'd be comfortable speaking about it today? I'd be happy to be speak about it, yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to speak about it right now, sir? I we can talk anytime. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we actually get to it a little bit later? Because sure. I'm sure it'll enter certain political domains. Sure. And first, let's address economics. Absolutely. So people understand who they're listening to. Right. You spoke about the basics. Yes. What I also wish to know about is the art of economics, which I know is a thing now because of the conversations I've had in the past. Yeah. So there are basics you learn. Yes. And then eventually, and I believe this is the case with any profession, right. if you do it long enough, it does become a bit of an art form. Right. And then your personality and your own for lack of a better word, biases come into play. Human biases come into play. Your own uh, thought processes make their way to your work. Right. Now, in your world as the RBI governor, yeah. uh, so I, I first want you to break down this art form right. theory that I have. The second sub-question is, as the RBI governor, how different was your work from the chief economic advisor right. and or the finance ministry? Right. And how do now, like this is basically three, four different profiles. Yes. Everyone brings the art of economics into play and right. then you'll come up with economic policy. Right. So how does this whole thing work? Right. So, uh, I mean, uh, when you say art, uh, implied in that is also there might be a science of economics. And and there is a, a science, which is the theory, the evidence that is built up. Um, sometimes uh, administrators don't know that science. They haven't been studying economics, etc. They basically come with an administrative skill set. And then they learn on the job, uh, you know, what, what has to be done. Now, fortunately, I had a long uh, sort of tenure in economics as a professor. I was chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. And then uh, I eventually came to India, was chief economic advisor in the finance ministry and then RBI governor. Now, so I had a body of, uh, of knowledge, which is useful because, uh, you know, in every profession, you have to know when people are pulling wool over your eyes, when they're trying to uh, convince you of something and you know it's not true. And for me, it was always sort of debating with the bankers who'd come with some new proposal proposal or or the other to help them and you have to know when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense so it's more like it teaches you the defense rather than the offense it teaches you the offense also in the following sense when you say offense i mean one of the things i did before i became uh, anything connected to the government was i was asked by dr manmohan singh to write a report on the state of the financial system in india and we wrote the report called 100 Small Steps. A lot of prominent bankers participated, Mr. Udayat Kotak, for example. And, and that uh, report was a blueprint of how we reform uh, the system. And of course, what happens with many reports is it sits on a shelf. Nobody acts on it. Uh, fortunately, when I came in as governor, the report was ready for, for me to start acting. And so we pulled it out and said, ye karenge, ye karenge. We, we went through the whole list of what we could do. And we did a fair amount in that period. So that was the, the sort of undercore science uh, playing offense. Defense is, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, this can't be done, uh, that can't be done. And then you ask why, and then they explain. And now you, because you have a background, you start 
seeing what makes sense, what doesn't. There's a lot of practicality. That's the art that you're talking about. That is there which people who have 20, 30 years experience in the area know. And if you ignore that, that also is problematic. Okay, just just to be clear for better yeah. understanding, yeah. I'm sorry I'm interrupting yeah. you. But when you say that you see a report and then things are actually done, yeah. this means they make their way to economic policies, right. like whatever you thought about in the report. Exactly. And when you're talking about practicality, right. I think what you're trying to say is when the economic policies actually become a law, right. uh, it affects the nation in a certain right. way. So let me give you an example of 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 a thought which becomes a policy which then needs to be developed. So, uh, for example, uh, one of the earlier uh, sort of constraints was we didn't license banks. Hmm. Uh, it was done rarely. Um, and uh, so one of the big issues is, you know, if you do license more banks, you get more bank competition of course, you have to supervise them carefully to make sure they don't make mistakes. But you get more competition. There's more uh, banks opening up, uh, you know, branches. There's more employment and so on. So one of the things we did was we essentially put the banks on open license. Uh, now, once you do that, you also have to license them. So that's the concept. That's the concept. But then the practicality is how do you actually license them? Mm. Uh, now, Problem is, of course, every industrialist wants a license and uh, sometimes to fund their own enterprises. You have to be very careful about that because you don't want that kind of lending because often that turns bad. So you want to keep out the industrialists who need loans for their business enterprises from running banks. You want bankers to be different. They can be financiers, they can be big business houses, but they shouldn't have a financial uh, uh, industrial interest. So that's part of the law. How do you make that? So we pushed regulation, which said we won't have industrial houses owning banks. Then the question was, what kind of banks? So uh, normal bank that you see, uh, you know, SBI, ICICI, that was one. But then we created two other kinds of banks. One was the small finance bank. For these microfinance institutions, they were lending to many small people. How do we expand that? Because we want more people to get get financing. So we created something called the Small Finance Bank. And uh, that was another uh, license. And then the third was Payment Bank. There are lots of telecoms, this, that, which uh, Paytm uh, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, Geo, uh, who can actually reach everybody. Uh, and, and that would be a, a gain for people in terms of making payments. So we created another license which were called the payment bank license. Now, we knew that you know, some of the licenses would not be successful. Some of these forms of licenses, over time, we'll see how successful they are and we may have to reform them. Is there things that only pan out when they are in the real world? That's what you need to be always alert for. Does it work? And ultimately, you can theorize how much ever you want. The proof of the pudding is seeing it on the ground and seeing whether it works. Because you can never predict human behavior. You can never predict human behavior. And economics is all about human behavior, right? You propose, but the public disposes. And so what you have to see is, we have licensed so many banks. That licensing procedure had to be totally transparent. Because otherwise people will accuse you, so-and-so, you know, bought their license by paying appropriate bribes. So we got the most uh, respectable people 
on the licensing committee from outside. We had three stages, one internal, one, and finally up to the committee, and then finally up to the RBI board. So nobody has ever raised a question about that licensing process because it was totally clean. Now, you know, in the middle of that, I read a article in The Economist saying, oh, rumor has it that licenses are going for $75 million a piece. I said, wow, I, I wish I knew who was paying that <laughs> and to whom because I'm not seeing any of it. But we did that transparent process. It went through. And I think a whole bunch of those banks are now flourishing. When I see a bank on the main street and I say, ah, Inka license humne diya. I feel good about it that we are seeing some progress. I'm also sure there's countless more stories like this from your tenure. Um, and you, you probably just use this one example to explain this economics 101 conversation that we're having. Uh, I have to ask you that second supplemental question sure. also. How is the RBI governor's role different from the chief economic advisor? Yes. Different from the people within the finance ministry and the finance minister. So the RBI governor does a bunch of things. One, of course, is they uh, govern the money supply. Uh, I mean, most people understand it is RBI prints notes. It prints notes, but it does a lot else in terms of governing the money supply. Biggest uh, concern is the reserves that are out there in the system. Uh, these are words I'm going to throw out. You don't need to understand uh, the public. Uh, audience doesn't need to understand them. Things like liquidity they manage. Then interest rates they set. Uh, that is an important part of the uh, of what the RBI does. It sets it high enough to keep activity from not going too fast, more inflation, or too slow, more recession. And it keeps it in, in the right place. That varies. That is something that it has to think about. And that's why we have a monetary policy committee. Um, one of the things I did was to set up that monetary policy committee to make those decisions. Because earlier it was only the governor making decisions. I thought that was too much on one person. It had to be a broader process. But I, I think that um, one of the uh, most uh, important differences between the RBI is it has these set roles. The ministry is more about fulfilling the uh, sort of uh, promises of the government in power, right? So the ministry is run by the finance minister, who is a politician typically. Uh, and so uh, they have to do what, you know, they promised uh, the people. And the RBI, on the other hand, is more a technocratic institution. So typically, the objectives are aligned. We both want growth. We both want development. We both want low inflation. But sometimes they diverge. So, for example, you know, before uh, an election, the ministry might want, you know, please cut interest rates. It's going to be better for for you know, re-election. People don't like high interest rates. Don't keep growth too tight. Let growth go. Uh, that might be the the incentive. So on the other hand, if the RBI is a technocratic institution, it's saying, no, no, that will prompt inflation. We don't really care about which government is in power. We care about inflation in the, in the longer term. So there are some differences. Typically, uh, you know, there's more agreement uh, between the RBI and, uh, and, the, and the finance ministry. But of course, in the finance ministry, the attempt always is to boost growth in the RBI, it is to keep inflation under control. So uh, sometimes there are interesting conversations. It's a kind of a co-founder relationship. One co-founder's aggressive, wants too much growth. The other co-founder's the play it safe. Hey, listen, let's not get too crazy. 
that's a very good way of describing it. Uh, absolutely. And and of course, the problem is one co-founder is appointed by the other co-founder. <laughs> so, so this is why people keep saying we need uh, independence. And there's a certain amount of independence which has developed over time through custom. That uh, the RBI, even though the governor is appointed by the finance minister along with the prime minister, uh, over time develops a certain kind of independence of their own. I can't imagine how many human dynamics and power dynamics are at play when all this is happening. Yeah, no, there, there, there is a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, uh, the Indian government is a complex institution. And uh, there are, I mean, apart from objective differences, there are also, uh, you know, cohort differences. Uh, the IS is a very strong and powerful uh, sort of uh, force within the government, and they have their own sort of issues. So it's it's an interesting, I, I think uh, sociologists would have a fun time looking at, <laughs> at all this and examining the different behaviors. Okay. Uh, and where does the CEA come in, Chief Economic the, Advisor? The Chief Economic Advisor is supposed to be the technical uh, sort of advisor to the finance minister. So essentially, they're trying to tell the finance minister, okay, you want to do this. This is the best way of doing it, economically speaking. Be careful. Don't do this, but do that. Um, so for example, let's say the idea is we want to boost growth uh, by reducing taxes. Uh, where do you where do you reduce taxes? Do you reduce taxes so as to enhance investment? That is, you reduce it for corporations making investment, or do you reduce it on uh, amjanta so that they can have more money that they can spend? Which one do you do? How do you do it? Those are the kinds of issues that the chief economic advisor would advise the government about. Is that a job profile that ever interested you? Um, I, I think it is a necessary job profile. Uh, you need to understand how the government works. If you want to be in something like the Reserve Bank, you need to understand, uh, you know, here are the dynamics at work, here are the concerns. It is also a place where the, uh, you know, uh, um, political establishment gets to assess you. Are you, uh, I mean, b before entrusting you with, with too much power. So a number of chief economic advisors have become governor, Bimal Jalan, for example, and and I think it uh, it breeds a certain amount of trust uh, when you have a chief economic advisor interacting with the finance minister of the day. Gotcha. So all in all, the CEA kind of feeds into that aggressive co-founder, which is the government, the RBI governor, and his team or her team are the uh, like slightly played safe individuals in order to keep the safety of the country's economic growth at the forefront. Exactly, exactly. And this creates interesting dynamics. I'll tell you one story where sure. one gentleman, and I won't name names here, uh, who was on the, you said, aggressive co-founder side, that is on the ministry side, uh, I won't reveal his position because it'll become very clear who he was, wrote a very strong letter to the Reserve Bank saying you must do this, 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 because you're holding back uh, these developments. And then in the middle, uh, he wrote the letter, no reply. In the middle, he got uh, shifted and became deputy governor in the RBI. And he had the objective, he had the task of responding to the letter that he had written himself from the finance ministry to the RBI. And he wrote back, rejecting all the <laughs> demands that he had, uh, he had wow. put forward. So, uh, 
the the point is not that this is this is silly government the point is that within the government you have checks and balances and each uh, institution has its objectives and i think when they work both work uh, you know in a in a broader spirit of cooperation but each one focusing on what they are supposed to do it works well and sometimes you get these strange situations where the same person but with a different objective will respond differently to that particular issue and i think this is okay this is healthy okay the the example that you use right now about how there can be differences between the rbi think tank and the government think tank uh, i think you highlighted uh, like election season so that when election seasons coming up a lot happens in the country because the government in power would be trying to stay in power and the opposition would be trying to gain power as well uh the one thing i've learned about a politician's life is that it's starkly divided into two parts in the first one the mission is to get elected in the second one the mission is governance mm-hmm. uh now the thing is in that whole process about trying to get elected it does change behavioral patterns it does change decision making etc etc and i kind of don't blame them because that's how the system is built uh you're saying that during the election season it kind of bothered your work as well my question to you is say if a government gets elected mm. uh and you know they know they're going to be in power for the next uh tenure do they still have a large say or do they oppose you a lot in your functioning as the rbi governor no see uh, let me give an example because i think again examples make it more concrete sure um in the run up to an election there's a great incentive to waive loans especially to the agriculture sector which is politically very important so farmer loan waivers are very very uh, sort of become pressing for every candidate to announce hum maaf kar denge ye sab ye karj maaf kar denge and the problem of course is that once you become the new government you have to find money to pay for all that because when you say it's waiver it means the government is going to pay the debt to the banks because somebody has to pay otherwise the banks will make losses and that won't be uh, you know permissible in the long run so when the government comes into power then it says paise kahan se aayenge how will we get the money to pay for all this we have just announced such a big thing and we've also got so much else to do on the development front we need to build roads we need to build airports we need to uh, you know provide uh, transfers to the most needy so there's a lot of demands and so invariably what used to happen is they do the loan waiver and then after they do the loan waiver and they win the election they come and say acha please help us <laughs> and you say you know how can i help you mm. you know forbearance don't don't uh, you know let us do this let us do that but the problem of course is once they get into power they have to govern exactly what you said promises earlier which some of which are not the greatest promise but then governance has to happen after they get elected and then if there's no money how do you govern uh, you need some money to make investments and so on i think it's important to be a little careful in the promises you make because uh, you do need to have the ability to govern afterwards have you had to sort situations like this out absolutely and have you had to give in to government's demands no i mean many of these were state governments and uh, uh, but you know state governments have some backing also from the central government sometimes and you have to say look you know this is not good practice i can do this but i can't do that 
what we have to do is find something which works in the broader uh, scheme of things. But also, I mean, ultimately, even though we, uh, you know, politicians have to do what they have to do, as a regulatory institution, if you give in too easily, you make it easier for them to do it. And in fact, they will feel upset that you made it easy because next time they have to do it again. Mm. They would rather that you stop them. In fact, they would, you know, I think the, the right thing was would be they would make all the promises up front and then you'd come in and say, no, 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 you can't. Uh, I mean, many politicians would love the courts to stop them from doing that because then they'll have the money to do the governance afterwards. Mm. If they're stopped by the courts, they can blame the courts. And or, perhaps they can publicly blame you also. They can blame me. Uh, <laughs> actually, this was, uh, I mean, this is the role of independent institutions to take some of the blame. And and but you know you need to allow them to be independent. Then then they can absorb the blame. Was it a fun stint? I think it was a very fulfilling stint because there were many days you left at the end of the day, um, you know, seven eight o'clock meetings all day, but you felt you accomplished something. We moved the needle. That is something you rarely get in any job. Partly because most jobs, what you're doing is you're pushing the paper to somebody else. Even if you, you know, agree, there's somebody else who has to take the decision. At the Reserve Bank, a lot of the decisions you could take yourself. You didn't have to move it elsewhere. So if we debated the whole day within the bank and we said, Hum ye karenge, you could do it. You didn't have to ask for further permission. And that allowed you to feel at the end of the day that you actually had made a difference. And in public service, there's no better feeling. What in your heart or in your eyes was your biggest achievement? I think um, there are, I mean, I, 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 instead of one, let me name, name four. Go for it. Uh, we brought down inflation. Inflation was at, you know, near double digits. We brought it down. And we ensured it would stay low over time by creating this inflation uh, committee uh, uh, process, making inflation the the fundamental focus of uh, of of the Reserve Bank. So that was one. We started UPI, uh, direct money transfers that you make all the time through Paytm or through um, you know phone pay. That was started in my time. It was ideated in your time as well? It was ideated also. Damn. But uh, the, the I mean, the success has many fathers. So I, I don't want to claim that, uh, that we ideated it. But we brought it out. The single most important uh, contribution, I think, that we made in that was to allow the non-banks uh, to actually offer that service. Otherwise, the banks wanted to monopolize it. Today, 95% of transactions are done by the non-banks. So that was very important in the success of these uh, transfers that 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 are made. So that was, I think, uh, a second uh, very important. And third, we started the cleanup of the banks because banks had a lot of bad loans and they'd built up over time. And there were some business houses which just refused to pay. And so we had to get them to start paying, get them to see the loan as a commitment to repay because ultimately the taxpayer was bearing the burden of those bad loans. And so we started that process of cleaning up how much bad loans there were and then started putting pressure. Uh, one of my uh, best moments in the last year was when I met one of the promoters at a conference. 
اینڈ ہی سیڈ سر ہم نے سارا پیسہ چکا دیا وی گیو اٹ بیک اینڈ آئی سیڈ واؤ فار سم بڈی ٹو فیل پراؤڈ دیٹ دے ری پیڈ وین ارلی دا سینس واز پرائڈ دیٹ وی آر ناٹ ری پیئنگ وی ہیو میڈ یو نو جوک آف دا سسٹم آئی تھنک دیٹ واز اے چینج ان ان کلچر سو آئی مین دوز آر تھری تھنگس آئی مین آئی کیم ان وین دیر واز اے لاٹ آف worry about the rupee the rupee was falling we were part of the uh, taper tantrum uh, there there was a talk that we were fragile five one of the fragile five and we brought back the system from that rupee collapsing rupee strengthened foreign exchange started coming in there was more uh, confidence and that has remained i think the rupee is you know performed quite well over time a lot of confidence in the system inflation has been contained it's not been those huge rates of inflation we've seen in the past and i think all this is is good change which has come we had atishi from the aap on the show uh, on the hindi podcast and from every political podcast especially i have a few takeaways so my question to her was about freebies because the aap is known for distributing freebies in delhi free electricity free water up to a certain point so i asked her that economically speaking uh, can all governments actually afford to do this because that will help the country or it will help the lower strata immensely financially her response was yes if there was no corruption is it true that there's enough uh, money with the central government for example which can be distributed as freebies for the lower stratas of society uh, if the government was entirely corruption free in all layers so one of the changes which has been ben- very beneficial over the last few years is the use of uh, data and uh, and direct transfers um that has made it possible to reduce the amount of corruption in the flow of money to the final beneficiary so we can know who the final beneficiary is we can transfer directly into their bank account and through periodic filtering using aadhar this that we can filter out the people who shouldn't be receiving benefits nevertheless it is still difficult targeting the very poor because who is very poor right you can say acha you don't you shouldn't have a car you shouldn't have a government job you shouldn't have this you sh-. those are exclusion but if you apply all those you maybe get rid of 20% of the uh, people that remain leaves the remaining 80% now who amongst them is the very poor i think it's useful to allow the very poor to have some ability to improve their lives to invest in their children to make a difference and that's what we talk about in this book how do we get an upliftment of the very poor because if we want to become a rich country the poor have to become much richer they have to invest in healthcare in nutrition in education and if they don't do it when the kids are very young it's too late by age 5 the child is effectively you know if you, the child hasn't got good nutrition is effectively crippled for the rest of their life so if you give them a certain amount of money if they spend it on better food healthier food yes today everybody gets free, free food grains but maybe they need more vegetables maybe they they need more ghee maybe dal how do you allow them to make that choice maybe they want to send their child to a slightly better private school 
because the public school, the, when I talk private school, I'm talking about a small school which is run by people who take some fees, not those uh, daily public school, etc. But if you want them to do that, can you give them a certain amount of money? This will be beneficial because it will uplift when you invest in your family, when you invest in your children, invest in human resources, which in the long run is really good for the country. So targeted transfers, I'm not against. The problem comes when you just spread it around to all and sundry as a you know, political gimmick. gimmick. Exactly. And that becomes problematic. Now, how to tell the difference? Uh, I mean, there is the degree of targeting, which is very important. So you should basically focus on the needy population. Um, and and the, then the, how do you, what do you target? So offering it in, in actual goods, uh, so much electricity, so much gas, so much this thing, is a little more uh, problematic because then the beneficiary has to take so much and they may not need all that. Uh, so for example, food grains. If I give you so much food grain, because so cheap, you're tempted to just eat the food grain. But maybe you need a more balanced diet. But because vegetables cost so much relative to the food grain, you fill your stomach with the food grain. And then you get malnutrition, you get all the diseases associated with bad uh, diets. So ideally, I would give you money to buy the food grains and the vegetables and the dals that you need for a balanced diet. So direct money transfers, I think, are very good. They empower the very poor if properly targeted. You know, free electricity, free food grains, etc. becomes more problematic. Let me give you an example of free electricity becoming a problem. If you give free electricity to the farmers, what happens? Well, they use it to dig bore wells and lift the water. That's good. But poor farmers can't dig deep bore wells. They cost a lot of money. Rich farmers can dig much deeper. So what happens? The water gets evacuated by the rich farmers. They get dig deeper. And the water table, the level at which the water is, falls deeper and deeper. So the poor farmers who can dig shallow bore wells don't get any water. This becomes very unequal. And this is not theory. This is actual practice what happens. So there are examples when you give free this or free that, it hurts some of the poor also. You have to make sure that that doesn't happen. Using the data we have because of Aadhaar, uh, we kind of at least have an idea about where the poorer janta is. You give it to the women. That that a lot of states are starting to do. That's the idea they have. And and yes, that is in a, a, a option because there is a sense, whether right or wrong, that the women will invest more in their children. There's also a sense the men will blow it on drink. Yeah. That's not... That, that's what I would assume the as well. The evidence is it's not that, that strong. But, but nevertheless, there is a sense that even having the woman control the bank account, unfortunately in our country, there's an imbalance between the man and the woman. And giving the woman access to the household finances... Uh, is a positive step in empowering women. And that's that's that can be very useful. So I, I think, absolutely, we should do a lot of this. But the key issue, is it affordable, comes from how, how well you can target. Unfortunately, if you target too uh, narrowly, there are some poor people who would be left out. Why? If, because we don't reach everybody, right? Okay. We, uh, even our Aadhaar, 
doesn't cover every part of the population. Sometimes the poorest are left out. If you do the ration card, sometimes the very poorest don't have the ration card because they're sleeping on the footpath. They don't have any address. They don't have any. So we have to make sure nobody who's really poor is excluded. And I think we need to do a, do a better, better job of ensuring the rich or the richer ones who don't require this are actually excluded. So sometimes, you know, in Indonesia, what they did was they asked the village to identify the rich and to say, okay, we will uh, exclude these based on that village identification process. Um, we should make it a stigma for richer people to benefit from these transfers and, you know, maybe publicize in every village. These are the people getting the transfers. Then people say, Acha, this person has a car already and they're getting a transfer. How is that possible? So we need the system to work uh, and some of the information which is not in the system to come into the system without it becoming a police state. Acha, do you think that there is an element of truth in what Atishi said about corruption as well, that there's corruption that happens in the central government because of which more freebies cannot be given out. I don't think that is the constraint. I th I think, in fact, one of the uh, uh, sort of positive achievements of the last 10-15 uh, years has been moving to this Aadhaar-based direct benefit transfer, which has made the government more efficient in giving uh, uh, direct transfers. Um, that said, I think the problem may be on the other side, and this is where the freebie culture comes in, that, you know, we also want to provide good schools, good uh, health care to the public. But when it becomes really easy to provide the freebie, and that's, what, again, what we write about in the book, that when you, when you uh, can put your face on an advertisement, we Then, who gets the credit? That big politician whose face is on the front page. And then it becomes very convenient because I want to build up my name for the chief ministers, the prime ministers, whatever, to build themselves on the basis of freebies. It's very hard to say that I repaired the school in uh, the building, your school building, repainted it, made it cleaner. When you're sitting, you know, in Delhi or in uh, in uh, Lucknow, and the school is in some small Mufasil area, right? Um, you know, if you were a much more decentralized uh, government like Delhi, then you can claim some credit. And, uh, you know, you were talking about Atishi. What the Delhi government has done right is fixed the schools, repainted them, so that the quality of education in the government schools is now on par with the private schools, uh, including some of these public schools, Delhi public schools, etc. So that's 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 a win. That's, that's uh, very beneficial. But we need more of that also. Who loses out in this freebies uh, situation? If freebies are truly given out. Yeah. And by freebies, I mean that little bag of money. Mm. That's basically what I've gained from this overall answer that you actually put money into the bank accounts of the poorest of the poor. Does anyone lose out in this process? Not from that. I think you actually buy um, prosperity because you give them a chance to have a voice. See, money talks. If that poor person comes with, uh, you know, Saab, Mujhe Kush De Do, uh, even to a government of office, they're not treated well. If they go to a shop with 200 rupees or 2000 rupees in their hand and say, I want to buy, they're treated with respect. Gotcha. So the bottom-up freebie gives respect 
to those people at the bottom. But, and that's as a relatively poor country still, there's only so much we can afford. Because then the freebie eats into the public provision of services. Mm. If you give too many freebies, you can't afford that hospital. You can't afford the school, uh, which also need investment. So it's a it's a trade-off. It's a balancing. This is what economics is. This is what economics is. Yeah. That what do you sacrifice in order for growth? Exactly. Okay. We had Tehsein Poonawala on the show, who is a political commentator. And he's often against a lot of stuff that the Modi government does. Uh, one of the things he brought up was, uh, I mean, again, oh, I'm, I'm giving you a very simple version of what he said. He said something like, uh, though considering the size of our population and the large youth population, every economic win that the Indian government claims is their own, like that the Modi government claims is their own in the last nine to 10 years, would have happened anyway, even if a Congress government was in power. Uh, how true is that economically? Or it's an unpredictable... It's a hard to answer question. Okay. Every government carries on the work of previous governments, for, for sure. So, for example, when I said that these direct benefit transfers had been rolled out, that was in a sense taking the Aadhaar platform, which was created by the UPA government, and taking it to its logical conclusion, which was rolling out direct benefits to, to people. Um, you know, obviously, both governments needed to do the work. Uh, which government gets more credit? Hard to say. But to say that all the credit belongs to the government past 2014 and none belongs before or vice versa, yeah. I think is, 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 is not right. I think a big part of political narrative all over the world is mudslinging in the other direction. Exactly. Exactly. Now, so, so I think it's important to remember that government is, is continuity. Mm. It builds on the work of previous government. This is what I'm trying to break down, sir. This government is continuity. Yeah. Uh, this statement, can you break it down more? Because what changes when uh, the party in power actually changes? Right. The RBI governor will be the right. same. Uh, I'm assuming even economic policy for a long time will be the same. Uh, and the other thing, and please correct me if I'm thinking wrong. Uh, but I feel like the, some of the smartest people in the country work in positions of power, right. work as the CEA. You guys have access to the best minds in the country, right. which is why uh, I think it's political narrative from both sides to downplay what their opposition has done. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that that is right. Uh, I think there is a fair amount of continuity, but it's not all continuity. So let me give you a couple of examples, right? Um, Narega. National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, right? That is a, uh, a scheme by which uh, people in the villages, when they are desperately needing work, work is made available by the uh, government and they get some amount per day that they work. And typically, this is hard work. It's not something which is easy to do. I mean, who wants to spend a day in the sun out there? And uh, But it puts uh, food on the table for them when they're in town. So this is what is called distressed um, uh, sort of, it's a safety net for the distressed. And uh, so what happens is that you see again and again when we have bad times, 
Remember all those migrants in the cities going back to their villages during COVID? You saw Narega spending go up tremendously because there were a lot of people who had gone back to the villages without work. They didn't own land, but they were from the village. And now they were doing this, uh, you know, getting these, um, these, this work from the government. Now, before uh, uh, the, this was a scheme of the UPA government, much criticized by the opposition then, of which the current uh, NDA was, was a big part. But of course, when they came into power, they realized this was a very effective way to provide support uh, in a way to the truly needed, uh, needy, because only the truly needy, you wouldn't have a middle class person coming there and doing that job in the hot sun. And that's, that's what happened. It was a support. And so they continued it. So this is an example of continuity. An example of non-continuity or, or changing is, uh, you know, over time, we were trying to integrate better with the world economy. And we thought the way to integrate is to lower the taxes we put on imports. Why is that important? Because a lot of what we produce and export is based on imports. Today, for example, there's a big debate about electronic components. The person who manufactures the cell phone here as puts it together, basically says, if you tax me on all the components that are coming in and I have to sell into the domestic market, I become unviable because you're putting tariffs on everything. The component manufacturer in India who wants to start component manufacturing says, if you don't put tariffs, I'm uncompetitive from the beginning. Mm. So who are you going to benefit? The person who's making the cell phone or the person who's making the component? Now, typically what we've seen in other countries is you bring down the tariffs, it's going to help both. The component manufacturer has to compete, becomes more efficient. And the final producer who puts everything together also has to become more efficient. So uh, that was the practice ever since liberalization in 1990. We brought down tariffs till about 13% on average. Uh, since then, we have taken up tariffs to about 18%. And that's why you have this complaint going on between the component manufacturers and the key tariffs are too high. It's, it's just hard to manufacture in India. Um, that's what the final goods fellow is saying. And the component fellow is saying, unless you put tariffs, I can't compete. I can't produce. So here's an example where we have discontinuity. Uh, and, and you know, there, there are these things across governments. What's the reason for the tariffs being increased? You know, this is an old view that somehow the only way India will be competitive, it re reflects a certain kind of diffidence amongst our, our manufacturers. The only way we can be competitive if, if, is if we put tariffs, right? And it turns out in the 90s and the 2000s, our manufacturers were really very confident and they were happy to see the tariffs come down because they also benefited when they were importing uh, some, some things uh, from the low tariffs. Somehow we have lost that sense of confidence in industry. And, and you know, so they're working with government to raise, raise tariffs. I don't think in the long run this is beneficial because uh, once they put, who's paying the tariff? It's all uh, Aam Admi who's paying higher prices for the goods that are imported only uh, so that uh, there's some protection for our own manufacturers and our manufacturers are making high cost. We tried this 
in the 1980s, uh, 1970s, 1980s. And we had a very high cost manufacturing sector, which didn't produce good stuff. So if we go back to the start of the podcast, you spoke about how economic policy always has a practical side to it. When you actually make it a law, then there's ways that human behavior works with this policy. I believe that the only way to make efficient policy would be to actually study recent history. So if your argument about uh, raising slash lowering tariffs is, look at what happened in the 70s and 80s. Isn't that brought up in the rooms where economic policy is drafted? You know, it's interesting that I told you there's an additional element to it, which is your, your science. Do you have the science or do you have the art, right? In the rooms where economic policy is made, sometimes it's all about the art. And the art is, I don't understand the deep reasons for this, but, you know, surely it must be the case. If I raise tariffs, if I increase the import duties, I'm creating some space for my own manufacturer that'll create local jobs. Isn't that a good thing, right? Mm. This kind of argument plays out. It's very simple for everybody to understand. It's good for the politician to say, ah, yeah, local jobs, I'm all for local jobs. We need more jobs, 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 biggest issue in India today. And so they agree with the, uh, and I've seen these arguments in, uh, and as, as chief economic advisor, I had to tell them why this was wrong. But these are the arguments that come up in those those closed rooms. We should protect our industrialists and industrialists are all for it. Now, Tell me what is wrong with it. Well, it's the second step. If I actually produce this component at 20% higher price than the world because I've got protection and I can afford to uh, make a costly component, and that's all my uh, uh, other producers of the final, say, laptop can can buy, their laptop becomes 20% more expensive. And so they become uncompetitive with the rest of the world. They can't export. They can only sell into the domestic market. They say, I need now 20% tariffs on laptop imports. So that so the tariffs spread. And who pays the price? It is our consumer who says, now I have to pay 20% higher for laptops mm. only to keep these manufacturers alive. And what is most important is they don't actually grow because they're catering only to the domestic market. They're not catering to the export market because they're uncompetitive. So you need to make these other arguments to see why it's not a good idea to keep raising tariffs to protect your people. Another example we we quote in the book, which is we raised tariffs on a very important input to polyester cloth, uh, which it was raised because we have a big manufacturer who is very influential, who could push the government to raise the tariff on that uh, that input. As a result, we are not able to compete in textiles because the input cost had gone up so much that, you know, we our cost of, uh, of cloth uh, to the, uh, you know, stitchers to the, is, has gone up. And so they're not uncompetitive with the rest of it. This is a very labor intensive industry. Hmm. But because we raised tariffs to favor one producer, we have actually made this whole industry uncompetitive. And this happens even today. This happens even today. Hmm. So effectively, what I'm gaining from your answer, one layer deep is that again, human emotions as well as political agenda perhaps comes into play. 
pull it i i think i think you have to have a certain deep ideology that allowing more competition is going to make us more efficient mm. in the longer run so if that is the mission statement yeah it will impact economic policy much better exactly that's what we had since 1990 when we did the liberalization more competition is good let's not reverse that now you know the lessons from that over time get forgotten and if they're not repeated you know your point we should learn from experience and keep repeating it if they're not repeated in the corridors of power and if we do seat of the pants policy and if we listen to the beneficiaries of such policies more than we listen to others amadmi has no place in that that uh, room where these policies are made then you get policies which don't necessarily benefit people okay how straightforward can i be with you absolutely as uh the narrative in the public eye is that uh you left working with the modi government because your opinions weren't heard no i i actually could do everything i needed to do uh one of the interesting issues is i had a very good working relationship both with the prime minister and the finance minister and um, you know i told you about the bank clean up i went to the finance minister and i said look we've identified such big levels of npas i'm i'm not accusing you at all you're no, 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 not no, a I'm journalist just, i'm just saying that that you know uh that was not the issue that we 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 had a good working relationship everything we wanted done we managed to persuade the cover as i said there's a job of persuasion there's jitpit that always goes on but you have to overlook that and and so long as you have a good relationship with the people in power you can get things done was there a reason you didn't do too many media interactions back then versus you doing media interactions now look i saw my job then as communicating policy why are we doing what we're doing so for example i remember the i was uh, you know trying to explain why you know lower inflation was a good thing somebody was complaining ki hamare interest rates kam ho gaye uh, we had fixed deposit rates we were earning 9% and now they've come down to 6% uh, how can this be a good thing and i told them there's 6% because inflation has come down so much and actually you're making money more money on your deposits than you were making earlier and i gave an example which became known as dosa economics <laughs> how they could afford more dosas because interest rates were in real terms that is when you subtract inflation from the interest rate they were getting were actually higher and and so there is a job of communicating why the policy mix that you're following makes sense and i think that that was something i did a lot you know sometimes uh, in a platform like this you also want to caution uh, the the uh, sometimes there's a sense of triumphalism ki sab kuch theek ho raha hai there's nothing that's going badly we need you know we're fine and and i tried to caution there also ki you know let's let's be careful uh it's when we start feeling nothing can go wrong the things start going wrong you know the andy grove uh, of intel once had a phrase only the paranoid survive <laughs> that's so true wow uh, uh, that's certainly true in politics 
But I think it's absolutely true from national policy also. As soon as you think there is nothing that can go wrong, uh, you stop uh, adjusting for the possibilities and they start happening. So that was also important to warn about the things that could go wrong and to make sure that we were continuously sort of worried about covering uh, for those. Do you think you were a disliked guy? I don't think so. I think what I hear every time, uh, of course, these are only people who, who uh, you know, this is a selected sample, say, I entered economics only because of you. So that's 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 nice nice feeling. I found the press was looking for all the, you know, downside of the balance never talking about the upside um and and i don't know whether that was by design or whether they were just desperate to find some counter voices and so they amplified that and i was uh, you know um sometimes when i gave a speech and i read what what was going out on on media on that speech i said this is not the speech i gave did anybody mm. actually read the speech mm. because they picked up those bits so I, I think there's a little bit of of that that goes on. Uh, I, you know, whether it is the uh, building up uh, like a Narad, uh, the dissension sells more papers uh, or gets more uh, sort of uh, eyeballs or or whether there was an agenda there, I, I, I don't know. But uh, but that that. That was the the problem. Balanced speeches got taken to completely out of context. Okay, I have a few things to say. Again, going back to my pre-podcast practice yeah. of talking to people for the episode. So, right. of course, I'll talk to a few people who understand economics. Right. I'll definitely always speak to extreme right and extreme left people right. to just draw out my guest's image in their head. Right. Uh, as I said earlier, everyone respected you. Right. The left people yeah. said that, oh, see people like uh, Dr. RRR are now uh, ostracized from the government, sent away. We need more people like that in power. The people in the extreme right, yeah. and I'm giving you both the perspectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extreme right said that, oh, he clearly doesn't like the Modi government. And, uh, you know, some someone even said that, that there's a conspiracy theory attached to your name that you're working with the deep state. Yeah. And the deep state is supposedly the body that runs America. Yeah. As in the front is the present. All this is conspiracy theory yeah, territory. Yeah, yeah. So they said that you're funded by the deep state. There are yeah. accusations like this. Yeah. And that got me thinking. Yeah. That wow, media has really cooked up some stories on right. both sides. Right. So now I'll pass the ball to you. Yeah. And I'll let you clear all these misconceptions. Well, I look, you know, first, when out of government... I have been critical regardless of the government in power because that's my job. I mean, we have enough people praising. And of course, you do offer some, this is what is going well. I was, uh, before I became chief economic advisor in the Manmohan Singh government, I was, the, I was an advisor to Dr. Manmohan Singh. And I have a speech in, uh, you know, um, I have a bunch of speeches talking about some of the concerns with uh, cronyism, et cetera, that were building up in India. And, you know, I remember uh, a panel where, you know, four of the participants, uh, this was uh, celebrating uh, so many years since the liberalization. Four of the participants, Ishar Aluwalia, me, uh, TN Nainan, um, uh, of the four, the fourth was Dr. Subara, who was the RBI governor. Three criticized the government deeply. 
there was a fifth participant which was dr manmohan singh who was a prime minister and he listened and he said i not for me to say anything i have to absorb this criticism and then act and he acted accordingly but the point is that anybody who wants just undiluted praise will go off track you know the emperor's new clothes yeah nobody wants to point out that the emperor has no clothes in this matter or that matter and you make mistakes huge mistakes which eventually i mean nobody has all the right answers if you suppress criticism you take advice only from a narrow coterie and you only listen to them and you kill all all uh, sort of adverse information adverse data uh you get the po- politics of the soviet union mm. and uh, see where that ended up so it is important for independent outsiders to offer their concerns of course you know they can offer you know both sides but everybody is offering one side so when you offer the downside you look like a die mm. died in the wool critic i've already told you i love the uh fact that we've operationalized direct benefits i will tell you i like the fact that we're building out an infrastructure in ways we never did before these are all good things but there are sides that you uh you will criticize uh including the fact that you don't take criticism uh which is a problem which is why you will go off track in yeah. many significant ways being a podcaster yeah. people want the other cabinet ministers to speak up right. and people would actually enjoy a little bit of self criticism a little bit of acknowledging their own mistakes i i think that that is important because it, the the one narrative pushes people like me who want a fair discussion to focus more on the downside because there's so much on only the upside everything is going well and i think the the issue of one person is is a very important issue actually there's a very interesting uh, quote from dr ambedkar the framer of the constitution where he said uh, bhakti in religion is a very good thing but we shouldn't transfer bhakti to politics because that kind of devotion to one person in politics is detrimental to the longer run sort of stability of the country in fact he said that leads to dictatorship and i think that is something that you know whether it was mrs indira gandhi or you know we have to caution against that kind of uh, sort of focus i mean uh, you know where is the rest of the cabinet why don't we have you know a sense that you know mr gadkar is doing a fantastic job on infrastructure why aren't more sort of achievements of cabinet ministers highlighted why is it always uh, and you know to some extent it's also the power of the prime minister's office i've said this many times having an overly powerful prime minister india cannot be governed from a very very narrow center especially if that center doesn't try and build consensus we saw what happened to the farm laws right so what we talk about in this book that we put together which i think is an important point about what we feel about going what's going forward that we need to rethink governance also at the same time as we are rethinking economics because the two go together if we want to be successful in the 21st century we need a governance for the 21st century we have a governance for maybe the 20th century maybe earlier uh this is 
something I loved about Milind Devra, who was on the show. He had some incredible points that he made. When I asked him what he changed about governance in general, he said I changed the whole system honestly because the system is built for 1947, and we're still following it. It has layers. It doesn't incorporate technology. Work doesn't move fast. Policy doesn't move fast. So he'd probably change the whole system. Uh, do you agree with that? That's my first question to you. Well, I, I would, I would not start by saying we need to change the constitution. I, my sense is when you open things up too much, then you can get get the wrong sort of change. Uh, we don't want to move from a democracy to a more authoritarian government by changing the constitution. In fact, what I think is we need far more democracy. So, for example, we talked earlier. How do you get politicians to focus on schools? On healthcare, and I think one of the important changes that we talk about in the book is decentralization. How do you get the politician to focus? It has to be the primary responsibility of the politician. The politician sitting in Lucknow doesn't care about what happens in the village. The sarpanch in the village cares about what happens in the village. Supposing the sarpanch was in charge of. the local school rather than the minister sitting in lucknow then if the school wasn't you know if the teacher wasn't showing up if the school wasn't repainted if it was falling apart if the children didn't get the midday meal sarpanch would hear it very quickly and the sarpanch would not get reelected in the next uh, election that is an immediate empowerment of the people immediate cause and effect forces the sarpanch to do what the people need and one of the biggest things people will tell you again and again we need is a good school for our children so decentralization would make a difference now uh, to your deora point point uh, the politics of 2040 uh, 1947 in 1947 what we wanted was to keep the country together too many forces you know splitting the country uh, after all we had just been through partition getting the princely states to agree to join uh, hyderabad was still not uh, part pondicherry uh, goa these are all had to be integrated so in that what we wanted was a strong central government and you know we had states but there was a partition of uh, there was a division of labor between the states and the central government but there was no need for a third level and ambedkar was very much against the third level because he said the village is a den of inequity all the social ills come there of course time has passed hmm. and today what happens is that our uh, you know state of uttar pradesh is the fifth largest country in the world it's too big it, india cannot be governed from the pmo in delhi it cannot be governed from the chief minister's uh, coterie in the state capital it has to be much more decentralized for people to get what they need and that is why i think we need that kind of governance reform that's not about changing the constitution it's about grassroots level governance grassroots we have a third tier of government which has been empowered by the amendments to the constitution in the 1990s what we need is to make it operational because the states aren't giving funding they aren't giving people uh, they aren't giving powers to the municipalities and to the villages we need that level of transition to take place otherwise everybody wants to keep power at that level and not let any go down you had highlighted demonetization as one of the mistakes of the current government uh 
probably the biggest economic mistake and you broke it down uh, i think the consensus of that answer was that the intention behind demonetization was to uh, reduce the usage of black money etc and we didn't really achieve uh, that um mission statement what about 2024 and maybe the last four years generally you know you've constantly brought up the book and what i'm sensing is that uh, the book is a way for you to express everything you wanted to say for years and you finally penned it down but i also give you this platform so because i don't know how often news media asks you questions like this but this is going to be watched by millions of people mm. uh and just open up your heart uh talk about what actually needs to be highlighted in terms of criticism of the current indian government so i actually want to offer a positive message sure. which is to beat a model you have to offer a model <laughs> uh the establishment has a very clear model of what they're trying to do uh, and it's focused you know certainly on some economics but also much on imp- you know giving people a greater sense of confidence well-being etc and and what i want to say is you know there are other ways of giving people confidence uh, which doesn't involve pressing down on one community while elevating or uh, you know making another community feel strong treating everybody equally including everybody in the growth process but to do that we have to focus on those who are being left behind give them more capabilities give them more access to schooling to uh, healthcare etc i mean just even in delhi which is full of hospitals some uh, poor person navigating the healthcare system of course has improved a lot today because of the mohalla clinic etc but you know 5 10 years back was miserable and of course in many other areas it's still very very bad so that's that's one part of it but we also have to have ambition we have to have ambition to grow really fast to become a you know strong country so that we can spread our values but our values have to be those you know our historical values of tolerance of respect we can be a different superpower we don't have to be a superpower which suppresses others like the current superpowers that we have right so how do we do that how do we go with our values to the world and say we want to embrace you in brotherhood but we also want to be a really important country and there we're saying look we can build on our strengths and there is actually a path which is opening up which didn't used to exist earlier a path which is based on you know intellectual property creation on ideas on creativity on patents these are the things that flourish in a society which is always debating which is talking to each other engaging each other producing new ideas let us win that battle because that's where the battle is being fought today you know when you talk about ai robotics etc you're talking about the battle for new ideas and india has to win but not win but at least be a big part of that that battle so we ask where are the indian companies with great products like nvidia uh boeing um you know um tesla we don't have those products we need to create those products even the industries where we are successful pharmaceuticals we do generic products 
which is imitating products of others. We ask in the book, I talked to Dr. Yusuf Hamid, great entrepreneur, um, you know, built Cipla up. I asked him, why aren't you producing new drugs? He said, the problem is that in the West, big universities create the intellectual property, they innovate the drug, and then they give it to the pharmaceutical firm, which commercializes it. In India, I don't see that. If I am to invest in original R&D, it's too expensive for me. Where am I going to do that? We need to make it possible for the CIPLAs to create new drugs. And for that, we have to uh, create very strong universities. We don't have one university in the top 100. If we are to become a strong power, we need many more. So we need to build at the very top the elite, the strong universities, the strong firms. We need to get the NVIDIAs, the Apples uh, to be Indian companies. And we need to elevate at the bottom because you can't have a bifurcation. For too long, we've had a bifurcation, the top moving away from the bottom, the bottom being left behind. We need people who are poor to also be elevated. And that means focus on the fundamentals. The ultimate problem with policy always, it's too short term. It has, some element has to be short term. Today, the biggest short term issue is jobs. We need a short term plan to create many more jobs. If you talk about failings, this has been the most important failing over the last 15 years. Not enough jobs. Not enough jobs. And you can see this. The number of applicants for IAS jobs tripled because there are no other jobs available. Even though there are only, you know, maybe a thousand civil service positions, we've got 11 lakhs applying for those thousand positions. Gov uh, railway jobs, 19 million applying for 60,000 jobs. You see civil engineers working as waiters. Why is there this? Because there are not enough jobs, but also people aren't well-trained for the job. A lot of manufacturers say, you know, I can't find workers. 1.4 billion people and you can't find workers? Yeah, because nobody's well-trained. So we need to upskill people much more. That has to be an immediate focus. In other words, what we're saying is there's a path forward. It requires a lot of work. It ultimately implies we focus on the brains of Indians. It's the brains that will make us truly. I have seen, and we give an example in the book, of people going from poverty to wealthy in one generation simply because of education. So, for example, uh, this fellow Mustafa in the book, father's a laborer, picking up ginger root. And Mustafa goes to school, fails in sixth grade. This is the typical problem for many of our kids. They enter school, they aren't able to keep up, they fail out. Dropout rates are too high. He fails, his teacher comes, pulls him back from the farm and says, don't, don't stay on the farm, come back to school. He goes back to school, all his friends laugh at him. Who are you? I mean, you failed. And his teacher says, be, be, be calm, focus on one thing you can do well. He studies, studies, does well in math, tops the class, suddenly gets the admiration of the students, then tops school, goes to NIT. You know, that's the beauty of the system. You can actually, uh, there are public institutions which are cheap, you can go to, becomes an engineer, comes back to I am Bangalore, wants to start a enterprise, start as, starts one, making idli batter, idli mao, and uh, sells it widely, and now runs a firm with 2,500 people. He tries to employ people like him. He says, I need to give others a chance. That's the entrepreneurship which can happen in one generation. Laborer's son 
becomes a wealthy man, uh, but is giving back. And we can get so many entrepreneurs, we can push so many people out of poverty if we focus on the right things. And what we are saying is there is a, a lack of focus which we need to remedy today. Today, we are more interested in getting some chip manufacturer to come and pay $10 billion to get them in. Today, we're paying $2 billion to get Micron into Gujarat. For what? 5,000 jobs. That's a mismatch. You told me earlier, what is economics about? Trying to find the right use of resources. $2 billion to get somebody to assemble chips in India is a waste of resources. $2 billion spent in improving the quality of colleges so that the students coming out from those colleges get a good job, getting many more good teachers into the colleges, getting much more uh, sort of apprenticeships so that these kids actually uh, do something that, that is useful for industry. All that would be a much better spending and that would enable us to get many more jobs. Okay. So all in all, more focus should be given on jobs. I'd also argue that in order to create more jobs, I think what you're trying to say is more focus needs to be given to entrepreneurial thinking, which again, the extreme right as well as the current government would say that they're already doing. Like, I'm sure if I if I relay all these points yep. to anyone in the current government yeah. or associate with the current government, they would say, nahi, ye sab to ho hai. Yeah, what they're not doing. So, so two things. Uh, what they're not doing is focusing on the other part of the fundamental. Creating a worker that is much more employable or creating the entrepreneur from the grassroots, which means much more focus on education, much more focus on healthcare. Let me give an example of where that attention hasn't been paid. What happened during the pandemic? A lot of children were out of school. A lot of these children basically have lost learning. If uh, uh, there's a report called the ASA report, which measures how much children learn. By that report, we are back to 2012 levels in terms of learning in the schools, right? In some, uh, yeah, according to some metrics. That is a, a worrisome feature because if you're going to compete in the 21st century, you better have educated workers, right? Not only did we not have adequate for them, it's gone worse in this pandemic cohort. What that requires is a massive, massive effort to uplift the kids already in school. That requires spending. Some states are doing it. A lot of states are not, in especially the poorest states. That requires a whole of country effort, which only the central government can give. And so that's where you say, you, you don't keep saying everything is fine. You look at the problem, identify the problem and act upon it. The government has produced a good report, the national education policy, but implementation has lagged. The government implements a lot of things. We need to implement the national education policy sooner rather than later. What's happening with the national education policy right Stuck. now? Stuck. Because just, of lack of execution. I, I, ex it has not been implemented, yes. yes. Who, who implements it? Well, I presume some combination of the center and the states have to get together. Some of it is about things that are entirely within the center's control, which is uh, there are many colleges which are too small, which can't afford adequate teachers. So the uh, policy prescribes merging some of those colleges. Now that 
sort of comes up against a lot of vested interests. Um, there are lots of politicians who run colleges who don't want those colleges merged with others. They're making fees from those. So you need to you need to break all that. And clearly, we have a government which has a political power to do that. We should be doing much more. My understanding was that the bureaucracy actually executes all these things, like IAS officers, IPS officers, etc. Like they make things happen on the ground. They do. But they get directions from the political establishment. And the political establishment, again and again, when it works, basically says, what happened to this? Not yet. Okay, better do it. Otherwise, you're out. You, you, I'll transfer you. So at the end of the day, the party in power will decide where the country goes. And I think the overarching criticism here is that we've not generated as many jobs as we could have generated in the last 10 years. I think... I think it's a longer standing issue. I won't say it's just the last 10 years, but there was a promise. We will generate two crore jobs per month. Uh, there's a guarantee. That guarantee has not been fulfilled. In fact, we've gone the other way. So one of the most frightening numbers, I'll tell you, I'll use the word frightening, which again we mentioned in the book, is that the employment in agriculture as a share of total employment has been going up. Mm. No developed country which is growing at six seven percent a year should see employment in the old sector going up because productivity in agriculture is very low there's not enough land there's no why are more people going to agriculture because they cannot find jobs in services or industry in fact if you look employment in services has been coming down Employment in manufacturing has been coming down. The only place where employment share has been going up is agriculture and construction. Construction, give credit to the government, it's been doing a lot of construction, that has been helpful. But the other two areas, which is where a modern economy needs more people, employment has been coming down. Okay. Um, can we approach this from a slightly solution-oriented manner? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, because again, I remember in one of your past conversations, you spoke about creative disruption. You basically said that creativity is a strength that Indians have. We need to play to our own strength. Like what is ISRO in the first place? It's Jugaad at play. And Jugaad comes out of creativity. Yeah. So I'm going to apply those same uh, rules to this conversation. Now, I've often seen in my own entrepreneurial journey that I've pitched an idea and it sounds like something far-fetched, but... Um, Maybe entrepreneurs are optimistic inherently, which is why it always sounds nice to me. And this is one of those moments. I personally feel that content mm. and content creation as a long-term career is kind of like a chef's job. You're serving food mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. okay? And then eventually people will also forget what you've served two years ago. But the actual usage of content creation as a skill that can help the country is if we're able to spread education digitally. Uh, because I remember speaking to Sanjeev Sanyal, I think about this, where he said that entrepreneurs also have a very, very big role to play in the nation's story. Everything yeah. is not down to yeah. the government and policymakers. Yeah. You need a lot of entrepreneurs in the country right. to actually make the change. Right. Uh, I personally see this as a pretty solvable problem. It might yes. be a far-fetched thought. Yeah. And I say that because if YouTube and Big Boss has reached corners of the country, right. why can't skill-based education also reach there? Yeah. Uh, I, of course, you can't make the practical side of it reach there, but you can make a lot of depths of theory reach 
those parts of country right. you can even make mindset reach parts of the country etc right. etc et right. is that a practical solution or am i being over optimistic no it, it, there is an organizational process but you're absolutely right that digital and technology offers us lots of scope for solutions right to make much better schools so one example uh we met this entrepreneur who's uh, basically started uh what uh, a a school system called orchids Uh, many people have been to good public schools columbas dps etc how do you recreate those schools in a big way right very hard because they have teachers who've you know grown in the system uh, and they've built a reputation over time what he does is he got 37000 plus lesson plans put together for each lesson that a teacher will give you know like you doing your podcast fantastically with videos and this and that he knows that the maximum people will listen to a video the short form video is 3 minutes so in his lesson plan there's a 3 minute video then there is uh, you know the teacher sort of uh, raises some question there's a debate every lesson plan is written out for every subject and then teachers are recruited to deliver this and there's instant feedback end of the lesson students type in did we there's a lot of technology used but it's a mix of human and technology without the teacher students won't learn mm. with the teacher there's a scripted process by which the learning takes place and you get maybe not quite columbus i don't know but you get pretty close to top level public schools but this is totally scalable He has at this point I think he has 63000 students in schools uh, I may get the number a little wrong 63000 is like 63 St Columbus and he has another 350000 schools who have bought his uh his process it turns out when you do studies and I'm not talking about his particular system but in other countries when you do studies on this kind of scripted system it works very well in improving uh people's uh, education uh, students education level why because the teacher has to follow and has to complete the this thing but it's properly timed it doesn't teacher doesn't have to run through it and the student constantly is tested to see how much they learned helped if they fall behind one of the biggest problems we have in class is students falling behind not understanding what is taught in class so this is where one way of preventing them from falling behind they get remedial tuition during the week if they fall behind there's another way if we're looking forward think about artificial intelligence bots so there's a teacher in a school who's teaching 50 students now teacher will teach uh, maybe 10 students in the middle will be very interested they'll get it teacher is teaching at too lower level for the smartest students so maybe 10 students will get bored and they will not pay too much attention but they're good enough they'll get it the bottom 40 30 or 40 students basically are falling behind they don't understand and once they don't understand they don't understand even more uh and it's all greek to them uh, or tamil to them or whatever they don't they don't understand what is being taught in class and they drop out how do you keep them on board well we need tutors and uh, 30% of kids in school today are being tutored but what if we had tutors for every kid even in a poor government school because we could have cheap artificial intelligence bots you type in the question and you know kids learn how to type very quickly etc you type in the question you get the answer acha i didn't understand what pythagoras theorem was 
please explain it you get a detailed explanation much like khan academy or somebody would would give and you learn so technology allows us the possibility of improving the quality of teaching tremendously and the hope is if we can spread this around the country we have a solution through a mix of entrepreneurship good old style teachers but aided by the scripts by the uh, kind of uh, bots i mean this is not far fetched um, i talk to people at pratham which works with the poorest kids and they tell me technology has been very useful okay so there's a lot i wish to ask you related to everything that you've just said mm-hmm. but we've spoken for almost an hour and a half right now so uh, i do believe these are the kind of conversations that need to be consumed in depth uh and often when we upload 3 hour long 4 hour long conversations they don't get entirely consumed mm. and only because of that i'm going to stop you at this point mm. and the rest of this conversation we'll cover in the next part where we'll talk about manufacturing we'll talk a little bit more in detail about politics but thank you for this 101 and i hope you enjoyed it thank you very much thank you all right ladies and gentlemen that was only part 1 of this special conversation part 2 will release next week i hope you enjoyed it i hope you learned from it in the same way that i did economics is a subject that i'm trying to learn actively through the show and through my own reading journey so i'd love for you guys to give me feedback on part 1 part 2 is even more power packed um perhaps more controversial in some ways but the bottom line here is that we need more conversations like this and you'll see why i'm saying that in part 2 so make sure you check out part 2 as well this was dr raghuram rajan with part 1 of our epic conversation on trs